We're jumping back into Job this morning. I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed my time of study. And let me tell you, I study a lot. To bring just a few verses to you every Sunday morning. And, 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 this, and the thing about it is, is I could spend two or three more weeks just preparing for what we're going to talk about this morning. It would be very easy for me to do that. Uh, but I do know that God has a lot of counsel for us. And so we can't get bogged down too much in particular places that we need to be able to continue to forge ahead but we've made it all the way to chapter three now this is a big transition point in this book up to this point we've been talking about historical events that have actually taken place in the in the life of this man named job where for satan by god's permission has taken everything away from him that was dear to him in this world first his possessions uh, then his family, and now his physical health. The whole time on the premise uh, of Satan that the only reason that uh, this, this faithful servant of God continues to faithfully serve God is because God has been so good to him. And if, you know, Satan's claim was that if, first of all, if God took away from him everything that was dear to him, then he would curse God. And so God allowed Satan to do that. And lo and behold, however, it really made no difference in the manner in which Job worshipped God at the end of the very worst day that anyone in history has ever had, uh, possibly with the exception of Jesus Christ. Job knelt before his altar and he worshiped the God who had taken everything dear uh, away from him. And then he was afflicted with these painful boils all over his body and his three friends have come to comfort their dear friend, obviously from relatively long distances. And we know ultimately God is the one that has called them there to him. But they found him sitting on the ground, covered with these painful boils, in utter affliction. And they sat. They've been sitting with him now for seven days in absolute silence. Some people assume it's because they couldn't think of what to say to him. But I would say that that's a wrong conclusion. Because what's going to become very apparent is this, is we're getting into the portion of this book, and this is what consumes most of the book, are these dialogues that take place between Job and his friends. And other people enter into the picture as well at different points. But the primary focus of the book from this point on is a dialogue that takes place between Job and these three men. And what we're going to find as we study through this is that these three men, it's not that they didn't have anything to say to Job for those seven days. As a matter of fact, it's become obvious to us that they had a whole lot they wanted to say to Job over those seven days. But out of respect and love for their friend, they sat in silence. And then in chapter 3, Job speaks. 
first. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the darkness of the day terrify it. That night, let thickness, thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who uh, are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dark be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come uh, out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have kept silent. Then I would have been at rest with knees and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig it for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So we enter into the first of three discourses that are going to take place between Job and his friends. Job is going to make, uh, make statements and then friends, his friends are going to respond to those. And again, I would challenge us with the idea that these men have a lot they want to say to Job and they're looking for the opportunity to do that. And Job is the one who actually gives it to them. Well, what I'm going to be doing as we go through here is I'm going to be giving you kind of summations of the arguments that Job makes in the vast quantity of words that he spews forth. We're not going to be doing this verse by verse and word by word because if we do that, it will take us from now to eternity to make any headway at all into this book of Job. So... What I want to do this morning is present to you basically a summation of the argument that Job is making here. Okay? The first thing he does is he curses the day that he was born. 
and he proclaims for himself that it would have been better if that day never existed because if that day never existed, Job would never have existed and Job would never have been going through the trials and tribulations that have been upon him of late. He would not be suffering the excruciating, unrelenting pain that he is enduring at this point and has been for some time, possibly as much as several months in this condition. Basically, the idea is if the day I was born never existed, then I would never have existed, and therefore I would not be suffering as I am currently suffering. In essence, what Job is saying here is this, is I wish I had never been born. If I had never been born, then this would not be coming to pass. It's a measure of just how bad the suffering is that Job is enduring. He really believes this. He really means this at this point, that it would have been far, a far better for thing if he had never been than for him to be as he is. Sometimes we say things like that to ourselves. I mean, have you ever thought in the middle of a great crisis when you're suffering maybe physically or suffering emotionally or mentally in a particular way, maybe to a degree that you haven't experienced at any other time in your life, have you ever thought something like, boy, it just would have been better if I had just never been born than for me to have to endure what I'm going through? I would imagine all of us at times have thought something similar to that. So this is not, this is, what we see here is a picture of the humanness of Job. It's not that he's this super duper human. He's human just like we are. And I would imagine all of us, whether we were very serious about it or not, have given thought that, boy, it sure would have been a lot easier to get through all of this if it I just never had been to start with. There's things in here that really are there to help us see the humanness of Job, and this is it. He's human, just like we are. He's not this super-duper person that, you know, is, is way beyond everybody else. He lives like we do. He suffers like we do. He thinks the same sorts of things that we do. He's not the super-saint that we make him out to be. He's human, just as human as all the rest of us are. Sadly, some of you have heard at times in your life people say to you, I wish that you had never been born. I'm not sure you could say anything more hurtful to another human being. I'm not sure it's any more difficult for a human being to hear anyone else say something like that about them.
I'm not sure there's anything that cuts anybody more to the core than that. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a very common thing that people hear or other people say about them. And sometimes it's said in anger. Probably most of the time it's when it's said what the person is doing is trying to inflict as much pain upon the other person as they possibly can by using verbal weapons. And there's nothing that will do it more than telling that person that you wish that they had never lived. There's another side to it, too, and I would imagine there have been times that people in this room have uttered these words toward other people. I mean, has there ever been any time in your life when you were just really, really angry with someone and you said it to them that I wish you had never been born? Any time that is said, any time that is thought, it is always done with the idea of inflicting the deepest emotional pain upon a human, another human being is, as is possible. But I want to remind us of something this morning. Well, a, a number of things. Number one, your personal value is not based upon what other people think of you or even upon what you think of yourself. Your personal value is determined by God's value of you. And see, this puts an entirely different perspective on things. Because as a believer, God values you so much that he was willing to send his only begotten son into the world to live life for you, to die for you, to be resurrected from the dead for you. What I'm telling you is whether you've been the victim or the originator of those particular hurtful words spoken, there is a place of forgiveness, but there's only one place of forgiveness, and that is in Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling guilty because, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. I've actually spoken those words to other people. I want you to know something. It's not the unforgivable sin. That when Christ has forgiven you, he's forgiven you for everything you've ever done, you will do. That doesn't mean there's not a place for you to go to that person and tell them just how deeply sorry that you are. So I want to challenge you this morning, if you've ever uttered those words to another human being and you've never apologized to them and told them that you were deeply sorry and regretted that, I would challenge you to take care of business. They need for you to do that.
But Job was saying this about himself. He was saying, I wish I had never been born. It's a measure of just how deep his torment was. In verse 11, his focus changes. It shifts. I mean, everything he says up to that point has to do with the idea that it would have been better if I'd never been born. If the day had never existed that I was born on, then I would not have been born, therefore, etc. But in verse 11, he, he, he says this basically. This is the argument he begins to make at this point, and that is, even if I had been born, even if, if that day had existed, it would have been better if I had been stillborn or if I had died very early on in my existence. That even if I had been born, there had, would, had been no one there to receive me because we know that, that infants, newborn babies, cannot survive on their own. He's saying, if that person who received me, that person who helped me, had not been there, then I would not have made it. I would have died very early on. Or even better, what if I had been born dead to begin with? That would have been far better for me than to have to endure the pain that I'm going through. There are some things that, uh, that are important here that, that, that are revealed in, in Job's understanding of what death is. Something that becomes very clear is this, is he understands that there's life beyond death. That when our body dies, that, that our existence does not cease. That in fact there is an afterlife. In chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, he says this, After my skin has been destroyed, in other words, after I've died, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself. Job understands that physical death is not the end of our existence. It's just a transition point from one phase of our life to another phase of our life. That's important for us to understand. It's one of the reasons why Job was not completely undone by the death of all of his children and their wives and husbands and perhaps and most likely all of his grandchildren, all in one fell swoop. Job will say eventually, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that he will stand upon this earth. But at this point, because of his physical pain, there's a sense in which Job does see death as the, as the great leveler, as sometimes people call it. Projects the idea that we all come into the world with nothing. You come into this world, not one single possession. 
And then when we leave this world behind, we leave all of that behind us. In other words, all people are equal at the time of birth, and at the same time, all people are equal at the time of death when it comes to certain things. In other words, there's no great and small at the time we're born, and there's no great and small at the time we die. I want to share this with you this morning. The first time I went to Uganda, it was before Dick and Barb went. I just wanted to know that, that we were the ones who walked on virgin ground as far as, I'm just teasing. They've been there a lot more than I have. They know a lot more people than I do. They spent a lot more time there than I have over the years uh, and all of that. But when we went, Lori and I went, the, the culture there was recovering from, you know, decades of civil war. And Idi Amin had just been pushed out. And, and, and the horrible things that he did to people there are just unimaginable. It's hard to believe that any human being is capable of doing the kinds of things that Idi Amin did to the Ugandan people. A country that was devastated. No economy left, no nothing, people starving to death everywhere, no medical treatment, no care, this, that, and the other. Not a whole lot of Christians there either. But there were faithful Christians going in there and evangelizing these people. And churches that existed all through it, Ugandan churches, that had been established earlier on that made their way through all of this. But the culture that, that we were exposed to was very different than anything that we'd experienced. There seemed to be a real hardness that, that most people have, a coldness almost that people had to one another. And one of the things that stood out for me is this, is you rarely saw Ugandan men interacting at all with their children. They kept their children at arm's length. And you look at it and you say, how cold-hearted can you be? Because you don't have things in context. I'd have somebody explain it to me. I was, I was distraught. It's like, how can this be? How, how, they treat their kids like they're not their kids. You don't see kids running up to mom and daddy and getting big hugs and kisses. And I can remember who I had the conversation with. They explained it to me. You've got to understand something, Keith. They don't get close to these kids because they know most of them are not going to survive very long. I mean, there are people in this room that maybe have buried one or two of their kids, but you need to understand that in a place like Uganda, everybody buries children. And sometimes a lot of them We don't think so much about death here. We're probably as far removed from death as most people or any people in all of human history have been. That's not that it doesn't come up. 
It's not that we're not confronted with it, but we're not confronted with it as often and to the magnitude very often that a lot of people have been in the world and continue to be in the world today. The average person today is living 10 or 20 years longer than they were just 50 years ago. Our lives are longer on the average. There's a sense, and we live in a very different world than anybody in all of history ever has. Things are, have been redefined by science and medical advancements and this, that, and the other. We have life to a degree that no people ever have in, in the history of the world. But we haven't figured out a way yet to escape death. We know this, that if enough time goes by, there's only one thing that's going to prevent you and me from dying eventually, and that's the second coming of Christ. Unless Christ comes between now and the time I die, we know this with certainty that everyone in this room, their body is going to eventually die. No one here doubts it. The big question for people is this, is that the end of things? Do we just, are we just born into this world? We live for a time and then we die and that's just it. We're, we cease to exist in any way, shape, or form ever again. Job didn't believe that and we don't believe that either. He sees death as the remedy to his great pain, not to the end of his existence. But he understands that on the other side of death, his pain will not be there. One of the most amazing things in all of this is we have no inclination or indication at all anywhere that Job was even, even considered suicide. It's not part of the picture. Because very clearly, Job, he was a man with a great heart for God. He understood that God had given life, and God is the only one that can legitimately take it away. Suicide was not an option for Job, even though very often today, suicide rates are up now. COVID's done a lot of things, and one of those is this, has increased the rate of suicides. It goes to show us just how important interaction, regular interaction with other people is for all of us. Sometimes I wonder if when we get done with all of this, because there are people in this world that are starving to death. Michael and Cindy and people that we know in Uganda are doing the very best they can to make sure that people are getting food through this crisis who would otherwise starve to death. Wouldn't it be ironic if we get on the other end of this and in the long run we find out that more people died from suicide, more people died from starvation and etc. as a result of our reaction to this virus than have actually died from the virus itself. 
People need other people. We need those interactions. They are critical. They are not any less important than other things are, even though some people want them out to be or make them out to be. As Christians, death should not scare us. The process may be. You know, what I'm hoping and praying is that when my time comes, I'm just going to lay down in bed one night, go to sleep, and I don't wake up. That would be the perfect scenario. But that's not up to me. It's up to God. It will come at his time and in his way. Period. In verse 25, Job, in essence, says that his worst fears have come to pass. In other words, the things that he has feared most in life are now his reality. He's suffering that which he feared the very most. Just remember this. Satan has bet that when he put Job in these positions that Job would curse God. He has not. He hasn't blamed God. He hasn't questioned God, at least directly. His wife, his beloved wife, As she sat and watched his suffering, she could bear it no longer, and she encouraged him to die. Because even she saw the only way for him to be relieved would be for death to overcome him. Notice in the first words that Job utters, there is no cursing of God. There is no blaming of God. I don't know about you, I certainly wish I was a whole lot more like Job than I am. I mean, do we really believe that God wants the very best for us in everything, no matter how it looks to us from our perspective? 
I mean, you may be looking at your life right now and you could be enduring some of the worst and greatest trials and tribulations you've ever experienced in your whole life. But notice here, God has not deserted Job. How do we know that? Because this is not the end of the story. God has not deserted Job from one moment. He's been there with Job the whole time, holding his hand, bearing him up through all of this. He does the same thing for us. He, Job doesn't charge God with deserting him. Do you ever feel that or think that, that God has just given up on me? He's left me. He's forgotten about me. Well, from a human perspective, you can understand why people might come to that conclusion sometimes. But I just want to reassure you this morning that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad things may look from your perspective, God will never desert you. Christ Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He will bear you up to endure anything and everything that he brings into your path. And let me tell you, everything that comes into your path is there because he brings it into your path. Every hurt and harm that we experience in life is there for a reason, and the reason is that ultimately it will be to our benefit. We may not understand how it will be. You may never understand that. But God's purpose is served out in absolutely everything that comes your way. It is according to his plan for you. And it has many purposes. And one of those is this, is to remind you that he indeed is there for you. That he indeed is is in control of absolutely everything. He will not leave you. He will not desert you. He will bear you up in your greatest times of need. Trust him completely, absolutely. He will never let you down. He is always there for you. And Christ Jesus is the absolute proof of it. Never doubt it. He hasn't promised you a life of bliss. He's promised you a life filled with trial and tribulation. His promise is that he will always be there. 
always. No matter how dark the day, no matter how troubling the times, what a God we have. What a mighty, powerful, and loving God and Father we have. He could do no better. Amen.